Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we explore the question of appeasement in modern European memory and ask how the Second World War, in particular the build-up to the conflict, is framing and influencing reactions to the war in Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 30th of May, day 96. Today I'm joined by Daniel Kapura, senior reporter and history correspondent, and Mutas Ahmed from our comment team. Before we dive into talking about appeasement, here are the main updates from the battlefront. The regional governor of Luhansk has said that Russian forces are edging closer to the centre of the eastern Ukrainian city of Severodonetsk, despite fierce resistance. Russian forces have also intensified their attacks in the Donbass region with barrages of heavy artillery. Also in the east, the evacuation of civilians from the Luhansk region has been halted after shelling killed a French journalist. In the south, Ukrainian forces have launched a major counteroffensive against Kherson's Russian occupiers in a bid to sever Moscow supply lines into the southern port city. Elsewhere in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky has fired the head of Kharkiv's security service. The dismissal came on Sunday, after the Ukrainian president's first trip to the war-torn east since Moscow invaded in February. In Europe, Estonia's Prime Minister, Kaya Kallas, said EU member states will probably not reach a full agreement on new sanctions against Russia at their summit today. And finally, the Deputy Secretary-General of NATO, Messier Gioana, has said the alliance is no longer bound by past commitments to hold back from deploying its forces in Eastern Europe following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Last week, diplomacy was at the forefront of the news cycle, with arguments raging over what kind of peace Ukraine should aim for with Russia. The dispute was ignited by comments made by Henry Kissinger at Davos, who remarked that Ukraine should be prepared to give up territory. Ideally, the dividing line should be a return to the status quo ante, the former Secretary of State said. Ukrainian policymakers reacted with understandable fury. So to delve further into the question of European geopolitics and to understand the history of appeasement and historical memory, I'm joined by Daniel Kapura, senior reporter and history correspondent at The Telegraph. 
Daniel wrote a fascinating article titled 90 Years After Europe Appeased Hitler, Is It Making the Same Mistakes? For Daniel, the disputed collective memory of the Second World War is at the heart of today's geopolitical debates. I asked him what he meant by this. Well, so the phrase appeasement is a pretty strong one and it gets thrown around a lot, um, you know, as a political insult. And we saw that with uh, Vladimir Zelensky's response to uh, Kissinger's comments. He said, uh, I think, uh, sort of to paraphrase, uh, Mr. Uh, Kissinger's calendar is stuck in 1938 and in Munich, not in Davos in 2022. Um, you know, as with so much um, in European politics, uh, the Second World War, the memory of the Second World War is is alive and kicking and, and drives... Um, attitudes and approaches and and appeasement is one of these kind of um, sort of bits of collective memory from the Second World War that that at least in the public imagination is beyond dispute that uh, the Western powers, particularly Britain and France, could have acted earlier to uh, stop Hitler that if they had moved in 1936 when he remilitarized the Rhineland or in uh, 1938 when he um, annexed Austria um, or at Munich, um, which was over the Sudetenland and, and Czechoslovakia, that uh, he might have been stopped then and he might have fallen from power. Um, so it's kind of this, considering how awful and bloody and horrible the Second World War was, it's almost this kind of um, intangible, ephemeral thing that, oh, maybe we could have stopped him, maybe we could have avoided the bloodshed, maybe things could have been better. Mutas, do you want to come in on this? It's a very strong word, appeasement, and I think a lot of people didn't feel comfortable using it until very recently um and i i think where most people draw the line is is when a figure or politician suggests uh that ukraine should uh, compromise its its own territorial integrity to secure peace in a war that so far at least you know we've dis- discussed how things might be turning but so far at least it has been winning um uh, to a lot of people that comes across as 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 appeasement um but um uh, we'll, we'll discuss some um, uh, germany i'm sure later on in the podcast it, it, it's it's particularly sensitive when when we refer to that to that country of course so daniel you talk about this being a, a dis- disputed collective memory could you give us a sense of the different sides of the argument here the different sense of, of how people are seeing this history absolutely i mean i just just very quickly on what mutas said i will say on the kissinger thing it's it's quite interesting that um He's one of these people being accused of appeasement. Um, but actually, I think that what he said isn't that far off um, what the Ukrainian government policy is, which is when he talks about the status quo ante, he means going back to the borders as they were on February 24th, because this is a really contentious point. Can and should Ukraine um, roll back and, and take the territories that uh, it hasn't been in control of since 2014? So so I'll just say that on the, on, on the Kissinger point. But but in terms of the disputed memory, um, I mean, so the, pu- the public imagination is pretty settled. And, and I'd say certainly in the United Kingdom, at least, and... and and the key sort of reason behind this is is Winston Churchill. So he was, people forget this, but he was fairly unpopular um, in the 1930s um, and certainly right up until he, he was brought back into Downing Street in 1940. Um, and throughout the 1930s, he was an advocate for standing up to Hitler for the opposite of appeasement. But appeasement was actually quite popular at the time. Um, the British public, you know, it hadn't been that long since the First World War. Um, they really were not keen to... Um, fight another grim, bloody, major war in Europe. Um, you know, that's why the phrase uh, about um, Czechoslovakia, a land far away about which we know very little, was so resonant because 
people remembered um, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. They remembered the fact that the First World War seemed to have started over this kind of petty squabble in the Balkans that had very little to do with Britain. Um, so it was incredibly powerful at the time. But, but Churchill was an anti-appeaser. And uh, he wrote his Victor's history effectively. So when he wrote his memoirs um, after the war, he was incredibly critical of um, Chamberlain. He was incredibly critical of, of those who had appeased Hitler. Um, and of course, he actually uh, released um, <clears throat> a document during the war, um, while England slept, I think it was called, um, which uh, made the case um, against appeasement. So that really settled the argument in the public imagination. But um, in the sort of academic sphere, um, uh, which is not just historians, but also people who study international relations, the kind of people who now are discussing and debating what should be done in Ukraine, um, the argument was quite different. Um, there were questions of should, um, you know, was Hitler always hell-bent on world domination? Uh, was it genuine to believe that perhaps he could have been bought off and, and appeased? You know, the word appeasement was not derogatory when it was initially used. There was a sense that, well, you know, actually the Treaty of Versailles was pretty unfair and Germany did lose all this territory and there were lots of Germans outside of um, German control. Uh, stop me if this sounds familiar. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe actually if you do give him the Sudeten land, if you do let him have Angelus with Austria, um, all these kind of things, then maybe perhaps uh, he will stop. And of course, it wasn't until Poland where Germany really didn't have um, legitimate interests that, uh, you know, it became clear that, that he was bent on world domination. Now, that's incredibly disputed. Um, if you look in the archives, I mean, if you read Hitler's own writings, you know, it seems pretty obvious that he was he was hell bent on on world domination. Um, and then obviously on the other side, you have um, academics saying, well, not only is it obvious that he was uh, hell-bent on world domination, but if he'd been stopped earlier, in particular in 1936, when he moved troops back into the Rhineland, which was a demilitarized zone, um, he was actually in an incredibly weak position. He wasn't the kind of the dominant um, figure that he later became. Um, and if he'd been sent back to, to eastern Germany with his tail between his legs, then perhaps he might have been toppled um, and history would have been very different. But of course, as I say, that that's a debate that, that, that happens at an academic level um, and, and it's not one that you see so much in the public. So moving forward to contemporary politics, how, how are these different sides playing out um, in the policy of European nations, Musaz and Daniel? Well, you've, you've got the what I would describe as, as the more hawkish nations, um, and I'd include us, the UK in this, and, mm. and America, who think that now is not the time to talk to Vladimir Putin at all. And now is simply the time to support the Ukrainians uh, in, in fighting Russian forces. Um, and, and you've got the divide between that and, and, and the sort of Franco-German view, which is, yes, you should support Ukraine, but you don't necessarily want to humiliate Putin. Um, and, and, and you should, as, as they are currently, talk to Putin while you're doing that. Hmm. Now, there are those who would say even talking to Putin is, is appeasement. Um, I'm not sure I, I, I agree with that. But as we've learned this morning, you know, Germany's policy in particular, both countries, France and Germany, were reluctant to send weapons to Ukraine at the start. But Germany's policy in particular of the last three months has been bizarre and out of uh, uh, step with the rest of Europe when it comes to sending heavy weapons to Ukraine. They've sent almost no heavy weapons. The armoured vehicles, they've they promised the tanks, they promised to send to Poland as well. Um, th this stuff has not gone anywhere. 
the only the only things they have sent are light defensive um, equipment, um, uh, and and of course this this from you know for most European countries it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. The important player is the big dog, America. But it, it, it does send a symbolic message, which is that Germany isn't 100% there in terms of its willingness to defend Ukraine. Um, and that has angered many. And, and you will see far more, I think, credible accusations of appeasement as a result of that. Um, so that's where we are today, this split between the, the, the Anglo-American view of how you should take on Russia in this war, which, by the way, is now supported, I would say, by, by most Eastern European countries and a lot of Central European countries as well. And then you've got this Franco-German view uh, with Italy flirting with, with that, that view of talking to Putin, continued dialogue. You know, they, 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 they've had phone calls with him very recently over the blockade of Ukrainian grain, uh, but also this darker side, which is a reluctance to send weapons over-promising and under-delivering, you know, a refusal by the German Chancellor to go to Kiev, tensions between Ukrainian ambassadors and and, and the French President and the German Chancellor. That's the other side of, of, of that particular coin. So there's the split. Um, and, and, and you, you know, the accusations of, of appeasement uh, are directed in, in one direction. I think just to, just to come in on what Mutas said, I think there's two two key points there as well. You know, one of the the arguments in in defence of appeasement in in the 1930s, particularly towards the end, the final couple of years, was that it bought time for Britain and France to rearm, uh, time that allowed them to to put up a, a fight against the Germans. And, and and what's going on at the moment with France and Germany is that um, you know it's not necessarily a problem to talk to dictators, but at the same time you have to make sure that you are doing that from a position of strength. And every day, really, they should be arming the Ukrainians and making sure that Ukraine is in the strongest position possible so that when they go and talk to Putin uh, on the phone or in person, however it may be, they do so from a position of strength. Um, and I think that's a crucial mistake that they're making. Um, on the other side, however, and I think you know it's important to note that what they were talking about um, when Schultz and Macron uh, spoke with Putin, they, they were, as Mutaz says, talking about the blockade of, of um, Ukrainian ports. And I think that's a, a key thing that that's perhaps being missed in all this is that it's not just that you know they're trying, you know, they're removing agency from the Ukrainians and saying, oh, you know, you, you, we shouldn't have too many of you die and you shouldn't have your whole country destroyed. When really that 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 choice is for the Ukrainians to make, but they're looking at the the global picture, you know, the picture of global stability, and I think on that front things are really quite uh, worrying. I mean, you know, two two kind of examples. So you look at Sri Lanka, which is you know kind of descended into chaos right now, and 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 really looks very quite worrying and unstable, and that's been caused obviously by government incompetence and corruption, but also by spikes in the prices of um, staple goods, particularly uh, cooking oils. Um, and if you if you flash back um, a little more than 10 years ago, uh, to the Arab Spring, um, and all the kind of political consequences and, and chaos that came out of that, you know, Syria, ISIL, all these things, um, that a lot of that, the trigger was um, huge spikes in the price of bread, because when you have um, sort of fairly stable but unhappy dictatorships, it doesn't take much to spark chaos. Um, and I think that is something that uh, European leaders are really kind of thinking about is how do we ensure 
um, the shockwaves from Ukraine, from the invasion of Ukraine, don't spread worldwide, whether that's causing famine or civil wars or whatever it might be. Just a question about the history from me. Um, how useful is it, uh, Daniel, to reduce, to, maybe reduce is the wrong word, but to to boil this down to what happened in World War II and its consequences? Uh, a lot has happened since. Um, so how, how do you balance having a, a good understanding of history and using that to make informed and fruitful decisions and, and actually that obscuring um, other, other developments? Yeah, I mean, I think it's inescapable, right? This, the, the shadow of the Second World War still hangs over Europe. And it's that one bit of history that everyone knows about and everyone understands, well, well thinks they understand. And, and you know, the, the popular story of the Second World War is very rarely the real story of the Second World War. Um, and yes, in lots of ways, it's deeply unhelpful. Um, you know, the comparison between Russia and Germany is, is, is faulty in, in many ways. Um, Russia is a declining power. Um, its economy is shrinking, its population is is cratering and will get even worse um, because of the massive sort of exodus of, of young, uh, clever people since the sanctions um, and the travel sanctions came in. Germany was a rising power, um, a major industrial power. Um, Russia is basically just a petrostate, you know, a, a gas station with an army, as, as the Americans like to say. Um, if Britain had, um, you know, stopped... Britain was looking to stop a rising power um, with Russia, even if there is peace now uh, with the status quo, will the Russians really be able to rebuild their army? Probably not, so long as sanctions stay in place. Um, they're not likely, you know, you take, for example, the T-14 Armata tank, you know, this um, spectacular new tank that, that, that terrified Western observers. Well, the reason, one of the major reasons that they aren't in service in Ukraine and there aren't hundreds of them that have been built is because of the sanctions that have been in place since 2014. So so in a lot of ways, yes, it's, it's, it's incredibly different and the comparison isn't helpful. Um, but I don't think you can escape the comparison because it is something that is so ingrained in, in public memory and the public imagination. Mutas, do you want to come in on that? Sure. And, I, you know, just to highlight, we, we, we appease, uh, as the West, um, lots of people currently. You know, we, 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 we appeased the Taliban in Afghanistan when we fled Kabul. We appeased many uh, odious um, uh, dictators who fund activities, malign activities um, that impact us here in this country, um, who uh, in the past have uh, funded terrorist attacks. You know, we appeased um, uh, Gaddafi for a while and our nuclear policy, um, mutually assured destruction, encourages um, appeasement. You know, we will never be at war with Russia, I don't think. Um, uh, it's never some, something that any British government will ever consider. And, and, and what we're discussing here is is really a, a, a proxy war. Um, uh, so you, you can't act, you can't sort of uh, you use the term in its, in its, its full meaning. Uh, in this case, uh, and as Daniel said, for the first time now, really, we are feeling the price of of, of this war: um, inflation, food prices, gas, perhaps gas rationing in the winter, um, and the impact that's going to have on on public sentiment will be quite drastic. Um, we've for the last sort of five months. Um, lent back on, um, on on mass public support because uh, many people thought it was um, 
costless, right? Uh, yes, we pay taxes, and, and that goes towards weapons that we're sending to Ukraine, but you don't really feel that. I think I think a lot of people will be surprised by just the impact it will have on, on their day-to-day lives, and that will change the public's um, attitude towards not appeasement, but um, uh, conciliation, maybe, or, 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 or towards encouraging Ukraine to make concessions for wider world economic stability um, because uh, a, a lot of leaders across Europe are currently looking at their at their treasuries and 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 and, and getting very very nervous indeed about um, civil societal issues in their own countries um, and so yeah we're going to see that shift just to just come in on that I think also um, the flip side of the global context is that we have to remember, and I think this is where the appeasement comparison is potentially useful, is that we're not exclusively talking about Putin and Russia, really. You know, we're talking about whether the, you know, wars of aggression have truly been confined to the past. Uh, we're talking about whether the, you know, what um, democratic leaders like to call the rules-based order. Um, and it's not just Putin we're talking about. Other um other dictators, other hard men are watching what's going on, the obvious one being Xi Jinping and, and, and Taiwan. Um, and, you know, when the war first started and there was this surprising Western unity and, and Germany came out and said it was going to spend 100 billion euros on defence um, and then finally came around to saying it was going to send heavy weapons and, and it looked like the West was really united. It was it's, it sent a powerful message to Beijing that, that you know, actually the West does have petty squabbles um, but when it matters, when the chips are down, they come together and, and stand together and, and, and stand up to the, these kind of um, actions. But uh, if that starts to fray and if the West really does start to turn on itself and, um, you know, the sanctions start to crumble um, and the support for Ukraine starts to dwindle, well, then that will send the message potentially to Beijing and, and, and to other dictatorships that they can outlast the West if they don't have to worry about public sentiment. Could I ask a question about historical memory? Um, listeners to this podcast, actually, Americans make up um, the vast majority of people who download us and listen to us. Um, obviously, there's huge differences between how Americans remember the Second World War uh, and America's role in it and how Europeans, and especially Europeans from different countries, do. Um, so it might not be completely obvious. So, Mutaz and Daniel, would you give us a sense for our, our American audience of what, what are the concerns, what are the issues? What are people thinking of when they think of the Second World War, when they use language like appeasement? How, how might that differ from how Americans remember and understand it? Uh, well, I think, interestingly, the, the question of appeasement, at least in, in the 50s and 60s, played quite a prominent role in, in American politics. Um, the father of JFK actually wrote a riposte to Churchill um, about, also titled While England Slept, which um, made the case that appeasement wasn't uh, wrong that it was right to buy time to, to rearm. Um, the issue with appeasement is that it came at a particularly difficult uh, time for the United Kingdom and, and to an extent France, um, where Britain was still diminished by the, diminished by the First World War, um, but it still had the bulk of its empire. You know, In terms of um, surface area and population, the British Empire actually peaked in 1922, um, not during the Victorian period. But, you know people could sense that perhaps it was fraying um, already the, the Commonwealth realms of the Dominions. Um, Canada and Australia were starting to develop looser, looser relationships. So one of the big kind of questions at the time was Britain 
was Britain this great power able to stand up to a rising power in Germany? Um, but the story that you know is known, that that's retold, that everyone recollects, that perhaps Americans aren't aware of, is the kind of the step by step, the kind of the growing gloom over Europe, this obsession with with um, war. I mean, if you go into the Imperial War Museum. Um, there's this fantastic painting um, that when you look at it, it shows a blitzed London, it shows gas masks everywhere, um, it shows bombed out buses. And you look at it and you think, oh, that must have been painted in, in 1941, 1942. But actually it was painted in the mid-1930s. Um, and that kind of terror and fear of war really sort of stalked Europe at the time. Uh, and so people really did wonder, how, how, do, we, how do we avoid this? How do we, how do we not um, lose another generation of young men? Um, but the kind of the step by step, you know, you had so um, the United States was not part of the League of Nations, but Britain and France were, and they were really trying to hold together this kind of imperial world order after the First World War. Um, and there were lots of various sort of treaties and things that restricted uh, the size of the German Navy, that banned it from having an air force, that restricted the size of its army, um, that demilitarized the Rhineland. Um, and bit by bit, Hitler sort of nibbled away at them. He he rebuilt, secretly built the Luftwaffe and then announced it in February of 1935 um, to no action. Um, and then later that year, um, Britain signed a naval agreement with Germany that allowed it to expand the size of its navy to a certain proportion of, of the Royal Navy. Um, and then in 1936, you obviously had the, the reoccupation of the Rhineland, which again, Britain and France chose not to do anything about. Um, the next big step was 1938 with with, um, with the annexation of Austria, Anschluss. Um, and it wasn't really until Czechoslovakia and, and the dispute over the Sudetenland but it, that, that um, the West started to turn away from appeasement. But even then, um, you know, Hitler came back not long after and, and swallowed up the whole of uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, so the kind of the lesson that, that you know we're taught that that um, is taught in in schools and that uh, kids kind of learn from a long, young age is, you know, here's this bully who takes it little by little by little by little, kind of salami slicing um, Europe. Um, and every small step seems reasonable. And you know, well, I suppose we should give him this thing uh, until eventually, um, you know, they think that they can get away with everything. Um, and, and, and invade Poland and invade Soviet Union and next thing you know there's sort of 60 million people dead and Britain standing alone as an island with France having fallen. So we've spoken about how this uh, the reading and understanding of the Second World War might not be useful as you said R- Russia is a declining power population is in decline it's a, a, the economy is getting smaller ha- on the other hand how is it useful I mean you've just spoken about this slow annexation of bits of Europe and t- until until Poland, which then sets off the Second World War, um, in a more fruitful way, what are the what are the positive comparisons between what Hitler did and what Putin's doing? Well, um, just just off the back of what Daniel said there, um, you know, thanks in part to our restrictive curriculum, um, when when many people in this country think of appeasement, they they think of Chamberlain, right? That's appeasement is synonymous with Chamberlain and Chamberlain was bad. Uh, That's all I know. Uh, And, you know, Chamberlain himself is synonymous with gullibility um, and most importantly with weakness. Um, And and I I think that's probably an unfair reading. Uh, There is, there are those who argue that, that what Chamberlain was doing was buying us time to rearm and and, and prepare uh, for war. Um, uh, that's a pretty convincing case. But anyway, if Chamberlain is synonymous with uh, a weakness and appeasement is synonymous with weakness, 
the attitude is that you have to project strength. And actually, that's not a bad thing to do in these situations, in these circumstances, uh, because often these dictators, uh, you know, uh, uh, these autocrats like Putin um, are more rational than we think they are. And they are testing us. You know, they're, they're pushing the boundaries. And the moment you project strength, they change direction or uh, uh, they know exactly where their limits are. Um, and so, with uh, you know, without NATO projection of, of uh, without protect, projection of NATO strength, we may well have seen attacks beyond Ukraine. Uh, we may well have seen attacks in in uh, by Russia in, uh, by Putin's forces in in Poland or. Uh, 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 Lithuania. Um, uh, th- there are those who argue now that the EU should project strength uh, when it comes to Moldova, which is an EU member candidate at risk of being um, uh, uh, attacked once again by Russia I- if Russia gains control of the entire southern corridor of Ukraine. So project- projection of strength in geopolitics um, uh, is not a bad thing. Um, and if the lesson that people have learnt from their lessons about Chamberlain and that white paper he came back with is that, you know, your country needs to project strength and stand up for what it believes in, then, then that's that's a pretty good lesson to draw. Um, of course, the lessons are quickly forgotten as soon as people pay a price for policies. Uh, but that's, that's not a matter. And yeah, I was following up on that. I was going to say that, you know, it's it's interesting that Kissinger is this guy that that's become the focus of this debate because you know I call him in the piece that the patron saint of realpolitik, and that really is the other kind of name for for appeasement. You know, appeasement's become this kind of derogatory term for for being weak for for misunderstanding dictators. Realpolitik is the opposite. It's staring eye to eye with a dictator and coming to an agreement. Um, you know, the West has been frequently and not incorrectly accused of, of hypocrisy, you know, uh, supporting friendly dictators when supposedly preaching values of democracy and liberalism. But the reality is that, that most of the time, Western foreign policy is aimed at stability, um, you know, incremental change, but overall stability, because chaos is seen as as, as dangerous and, and um, unpredictable. Um, and the thing with Putin here is that he is no longer a force for stability. He's a force for instability. He's creating chaos. He's sending uh, gas prices rocketing, oil prices rocketing, food prices rocketing. He is seeding instability throughout the world. You know, he's deliberately blockading grain exports. And that's the point at which the Western system, even if you call it realpolitik rather than appeasement, well, the realpolitik answer to, to instability is to strike back and end it and make it clear that causing instability, being an agent of instability, doesn't pay. In fact, it, it costs you dearly. Um, and I, I think maybe that's the, the more positive spin on it, is that is that up until, you know, up until the invasion, everyone was making every effort possible to try and bring Putin on side to stop him from invading Ukraine. And I don't think it was wrong to go to Moscow and talk to him, you know. Macron was belittled for for going to Ukraine. To, sorry, for going to Moscow and sitting at the end of that long table, and being seen as as an appeaser and someone kind of giving in to Putin. But I don't think that it was wrong to try and find a reasonable way of of preventing the invasion. Obviously, it turned out there was no reasonable way, and, and Putin was bent on it. And at that point, um, actually, the kind of the realpolitik calculation is that then you make them pay, um, and you make sure that there is that anyone else considering being an agent of instability knows the cost. There, there, there is a particular problem with with Kissinger and Macron, though, which is that 
Kissinger hasn't just spoken to Putin. Kissinger has spent years bragging about his close relationship with Putin, a friendly relationship with Putin, even after Putin annexed part of a European country. Right? That that's different to just talking to someone, uh, which is why so so many people were ready to jump on his comments about uh, Ukraine, even though he said uh, status quo ante, which would take us back to um, to actually what what you're right, what what uh, what Britain and America want. Um, you know, the reason people pounced is is because you know we all see the photos of Kissinger smiling and 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 being uh, arguably overly friendly with the Russian autocrat. And it's the same with Macron. He didn't just negotiate with Putin. He branded himself as the Putin whisperer. Uh, he sought a a close personal bond with Putin. Um, and when he went to Moscow before the invasion, he did it at the expense of Ukrainian efforts to defend themselves, right? He, he wasn't just going to Moscow to speak to Putin. He was coming back from Moscow and denying Anglo-American intelligence reports about the imminence of an invasion. Um, he, he was coming back and saying things like, Putin, I, I don't believe Putin will, will ever invade Ukraine. Uh, th- th- this stuff isn't just being real or realistic. It's it's actively working against, working uh, to detriment of of Ukrainian defence. So that that's that like, that's the argument um, uh, people accusing these two men of, of appeasement would put forward. No, I I think I have a lot of time for that argument. I mean, I think this gets to the crux of it, doesn't it? That that was the West's response to twenty fourteen. Um, with Crimea, the annexation of Crimea, and then more importantly with the, the, the fermenting of, of the um, uprisings in the east of Ukraine. And then what's forgotten as well is that Ukraine was on the brink of actually crushing those those um, uh, breakaway statelets and then the Russians sent in the army basically, you know, the little green men with all their uh, insignia removed. That, that gets to the crux of it, you know. Did the West's failure to act in 2014, um, and they did act to an extent, there were sanctions, but did did their failure to act in a stronger manner lead Putin onto the path today? And I think that is an important debate to be had, but you're also in danger of kind of teleology and saying, well, here we are in 2022, dot, 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 2014, that's how we got here. And of course, pre-pandemic, um, you know, Putin appeared to be in a very different place. Um, you know, Mark Galliotti, the kind of the, the Kremlin watcher, was sort of speculating that actually he was desperately looking for a successor and struggling to find one. And it wasn't really until until the pandemic and the lockdowns and Putin kind of closed himself away in Moscow and, and never went near anyone that he seems to have, have developed this obsession with history and this develop, this obsession with, with leaving a bigger legacy than he has. So I think that, that yes, it's, it's, it's very important to look at what happened post-2014. Um, certainly, you know, things like the... Um, the uh, Sochi Olympics, um, allowing Russia to host the World Cup, um, the way in which Putin was kind of reintegrated back into um, back into um, sort of geopolitics and was allowed to go to major events and meet people and shake hands should should not have happened. Um, but was it wrong in that in those intervening eight years to try and come to an accommodation? And I think that's that's the big question. Did that accommodation lead Putin to invade or, or was it right anyway if there was some hope of, of having avoided what we have today? I just wanted to ask a quick question about the, some of the – well, the, 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 the debate over appeasement now is obviously – we're talking about it now. We're, we're nearly 100 days into this war. How, how has the war – how has the war changed the debate? What I mean is 
anti-appeasers fear that if Kiev gives up more land, Putin will be back for the rest of Ukraine. Um, is that true, though? I mean, what about the the huge troop loss that the Russian army has suffered in in in, uh, in aircraft, in tanks, in APCs, in, and in men? Has the the way the Ukrainians have fought and the way that they've defended their land completely changed the game? What do you think? I think. Um it has certainly it has because early in the war, obviously, people thought that that um, Kiev would fall and that there'd be guerrilla warfare, and we'd need to be supporting these guerrillas rather than, um, you know, an army that needs artillery and, and ammunition. You know, something more akin to Afghanistan in, in the nineteen eighties. Um, I think there's a couple of, you know, important distinctions to be made. So, and this is where going back to the status quo ante is is important. Um, Ukraine needs to be a viable state. Um, whatever Zelensky and, and the government in Kiev decide, because ultimately it is up to them, although they're reliant on Western support, it should be up to them what a peace deal looks like. Um, Ukraine needs to be a viable state. And the reality is that it will not be a viable state if it doesn't have Black Sea ports, if it can't export its grain that way, um, you know, to, to create the infrastructure that would change that, you know, the sort of um, railways and the like would take, you know, the best part of a decade. So it, it needs ports. Otherwise, it just is not economically viable. Um, it needs its best agricultural land, much of which is in the east. Um, it needs its industrial heartland, much of which is in the east. Um, you know, if, if if those bits are carved off by Putin, regardless of what you think about rewarding um, a war of aggression and, and rewarding a dictator, um, it would leave Ukraine unable to properly function. So that's that's the first question really the important one, um, which leads on to the second question of, well, how much land could Ukraine theoretically live without? Um, and that's where this kind of February 24th thing comes in. You know, it's possibly not unrealistic to suggest that Ukrainians with enough Western support might be able to um, retake Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, diplomatically, it's a different question. But Crimea, for example, I don't think anyone realistically believes that there's any prospect of uh, the Ukrainians being able to retake um, Crimea. Um, but, but back to the original point, um, in terms of Russian losses, no, I don't think that anyone believes, particularly if the sanctions stay in place. That's another major question. You know, how long will Western sanctions stay in place? But presuming that they do, I don't see any way in which Russia could realistically rebuild its armed forces uh, and, and um, you know, attempt to take Kiev again, attempt to reach Odessa. But let's not forget that the Ukrainians themselves have suffered incredible losses. We haven't seen them because they haven't been publicized. Uh, the Ukrainian government's been much more secretive about that, but they really have. Um, and so it's not as if uh, when the, the peace lines are drawn, Ukraine will be in you know an incredibly strong position, you know, suddenly with a much stronger army than before. It won't. It will be weakened. Well, Putin considers Ukraine to be the anti-Russia. Uh, he's been very clear about that, and he has good reason to. Um, uh, uh, and that's a permanent threat to his autocratic style of government. You know, if Ukraine is allowed to prosper as a peaceful country with a democratic state and a civic society, people in Russia will start turning on autocratic regimes in Russia. So Ukraine is considered in the Kremlin a constant threat um, and therefore, it cannot be allowed to succeed, and you you stop it from succeeding by distru- disrupting it, uh, whether that be by evading, you know, physically, or crippling its economy, or you know, um, uh, fermenting uh, civil uh, uh, uprisings, or wh- whatever it is. Um, Russia's determination to 
destroy the Ukrainian state is semi-permanent, right? For as long as Russia has autocratic regimes, it won't want a, a successful democratic nation next door. Um, so, yes, I think Russia will keep on trying. Um, and uh, there is much less regard for casualties uh, than there is here um, in Britain or in America or in, in other European countries. Um, and look, we, we will soon find out because soon Russia will have control of much of the Luhansk uh, region in the Donbass. Um, and we will see, you know, th- that will be a perfect opportunity for Putin to declare victory and pack up his toys. Um, uh, but he probably won't do that. He will probably try to push further west. Um, and that will answer our question. Um, it might seem foolish after his, his, his failures of last five months, but it will tell us a lot about his determination um, uh, and, and his state of mind. Just before we finish, I've got one final question, um, mainly directed at Daniel as, as a historian. Um, the character at the centre of the history of appeasement is, is Adolf Hitler. Um, and the Hitler analogies, we, we already know that they've been coming thick and fast through this conflict. As, as a historian, what do you see as the usefulness and maybe the similarities and differences of, of uh, Adolf Hitler to, to Vladimir Putin? I mean, not that useful, uh, being blunt, um, not just because of what I was saying earlier about declining power versus a rising power, but also because, um, you know, Hitler was an ideologue. Uh, he had a vision for the world, a deeply disturbing one, but he had a vision for the world nonetheless and something he wanted to achieve. Um, You know, I think uh, one of the best descriptions I've ever sort of read of Putin is that people mistake him for a master chess player who's who's 10 moves ahead of everyone. And actually, he's not. He's a judoka. You know, he's a black belt in judo. And, And what judokas do is not think 10 moves ahead. It's they're opportunists. You know, they don't think about the consequences. They just wait for an opportunity take advantage and then see what happens and wait for the next opportunity. And sometimes that pays off and sometimes it goes disastrously wrong, as it has done now. Um, I think the danger of looking at Putin as this kind of Hitler, you know, all these warnings that your country will be next, he'll be in Poland next, he'll be in the Baltics next. I, I think it's useful for rallying support, but it's not useful as a, as a tool of strategic analysis. Um, because what, what will he actually target? What does he actually want? What can he justify? Uh, what helps him retain his position. And I think what um, Mutaz was saying is very important, that you know Ukraine cannot be allowed to be uh, a democratic nation. I don't think Putin would have any problem with an independent Ukraine if it was still in his orbit, if it was still you know, this kind of kleptocracy that it was 15, 20 years ago. I think Mutaz is right. The problem is that it that threatened to become democratic, threatened to enter the EU orbit. And and what we really have is is a situation more akin to Taiwan or to South Korea, where you have the Western capitalist um, state, um, and next to it you have the the communist dictatorship. Um, it, it's more similar to that in that uh, you know Ukraine does threaten to become a thriving democracy if the West puts enough money behind it. I don't think that matches up to what you're looking at in the Second World War with Hitler. Yeah, you know, Putin makes make, makes this joke. Um, he's made it at least once at at a dinner party, which is that after the death of Mahatma Gandhi, there's no one to talk to, no one for him to talk to, and there have been lots of sort of interpretations of what that means, and lots of people are th- thinking about it. One interpretation is that he's referring to Hitler and Stalin, 
who both died at around the same time. Um, now that's that's yeah, that's just something to think about. But he he doesn't have the the power that Hitler had. He, 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 I'm reluctant to say he can't inflict the damage Hitler could because he's got tons of nuclear weapons. But um, but you've got to be sympathetic when people say. Uh, when, when people in Ukraine compare him to Hitler, um, my personal view is that um, his conduct in Ukraine has come pretty close to genocide at some points, especially uh, after we saw those uh, images of Butcher. Um, and comparing any genocidal leader to Hitler is appropriate. Um, of course, we're not, there's no world war. Uh, he isn't invading multiple, um, uh, you, you know, I, I was about to say he isn't invading multiple countries at the same time. We've seen him invade multiple countries. He isn't invading large European powers and, and therefore he isn't at, at Hitler's level yet. But it, 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 does it really matter? You know, this, this is a bad man killing lots of people in a, in in an uh, in an in in what looks like an ethnic war, um, uh, he is a man who doesn't believe Ukraine should exist and and doesn't believe the Ukrainians know what they are. You know, he, he doesn't believe in. You know, he he considers Ukrainians who consider themselves Ukrainians to either be fooled or to be evil. Uh, what what does that tell you? Um, so it doesn't matter, you know, if we can call him Hitler or not. He's, he's to me, he's a, he's a genocidal dictator, and that's bad enough. I think this gets back to what we were saying at the start of the episode. You know, appeasement is 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 in the public imagination. It's a story that, that kids in Europe all know, uh, and that's fine. Um, but it's not necessarily, it shouldn't be the tool that our leaders are using to, to make uh, strategic decisions. And I think the same, perhaps, of the Hitler comparison. I think it's... It's fine, and it's, it's it makes sense. It emotionally makes sense for people confronting war in Europe in the twenty first century. Um, I just hope that our leaders are using slightly more sophisticated analysis when they consider whether to talk to Putin or not. Well, I think we've come to the end of our time. Thank you both. Thank you, Mutas. Thank you, Daniel, for, for your time, and thank you for your analysis. I think we've really got under the skin of some of these terms and some of the histories. Would you both like uh, to sum up, um, Mutas? Would you like to go first, and then Daniel Kapura, you can have the final word. Sure. Um... Uh, it's been a conversation about appeasement and and the word itself. Um, again, I, the word doesn't matter. The, 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 the question at, at hand is, is should the West negotiate with Putin? Um, and, you know, inherent in that is, should the West make concessions on Ukraine's behalf? Um, and the answer to that, in my view, has to be no. So whatever we call that, uh, appeasement, you know, conciliation, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's probably a bad thing. However, uh, we're going to see a hell of a lot of pressure over the coming months uh, because a lot of things, uh, uh, in terms of the, 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 the bigger picture, uh, is uh, a lot of things are moving in, in Putin's direction and he's gaining leverage. Um, you know, the closer certain countries come to famine, 
the more migration we see from uh, North African nations and, and African and East African nations, uh, the higher these energy prices go, the higher inflation goes and food prices go, the longer the blockades are sustained, the more leverage Putin has. So we, we probably are entering a new phase, a new phase in this war, where for the first time, um, uh, uh, really since, since the first week, uh, Putin has the momentum um, and, and has the upper hand. Uh, which is which is not a, not a nice thing to 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 start the week on, but but there we are. Brilliant, yeah. So um, agree with what Mutaz has said, and and yes, we've looked at you know appeasement as as a tool of of historical uh, diplomatic analysis. Um, and I think it's it's not entirely useful, but but I'm going to get, going to go against what I said and, and actually use it and say well. You know, we can look at how we got here. We can look at 2014 and 2018 and, and, and the steps and, and even, you know, what was going on before the invasion in February of this year. Um, but ultimately, um, the message of it is that we're not in 1935, 36, 37 or 38. We are, if we want to use the Second World War comparison, in 1940. You know, the war's already started. And as I was saying earlier with the kind of, if you want to refer to realpolitik rather than appeasement, well... Uh, Putin is an agent of instability, and now is the moment to make sure that he um, pays the price for that. Uh, if we don't want to see further instability, uh, further dictators taking uh, needless risks and, and sowing more chaos in the world, um, then it's time for the West to stand together um, and stand behind Ukraine. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Jaden Irving. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>